The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. Ian Stone and this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. No messing about today, we're going to get right into it with the main Arsenal writers from The Athletic, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Good afternoon. Hi Ian. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. This is, I think you'd agree, a huge week for the Arsenal. Thursday could make make or break our season and after that ridiculous late equaliser last week, we have to go to Prague and either win or get a high scoring draw. It's going to be tense. So before we start, we thought we'd ask the panel about tense European second legs. Uh, Amy, give us a tense European second leg. You know what? I realised because I think it was my fault that we proposed this uh, opening question. And then thinking about it, virtually every European second leg comes with a fair degree of (laughs) ridiculous stress. I think it's only when, we, when there was the, you know, you're 4-0 down to AC Milan for the first second. Even then, still managed to make that kind of yes. close enough. So, um, but I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick two that stick out particularly for inducing a sort of level of anxiety that is on the real uh, extreme side. Um, one of which was the Cup Winners' Cup in 1995 when Arsenal played Auxerre in the quarterfinals, yeah. And... Um, a memorable trip. I went with some friends. We got lost. There was it was one of the it was a it was a standoff between me and my friend who I can't remember which one was driving, which one was like co-pilot about whether or not we stop and ask a local for directions. And I was in favour of stopping and asking, and they were in favour of just continuing and hoping to stumble upon bloody stadium. And it was so we were tense before we even started. Arsenal drawn one one the the home lake at Highbury. They were a good side, I was there and. Uh, we went uh, over there and Arsenal were in a really appalling, terrible run. Genuinely thought, it was a bit like, well, some experiences of recent years where you thought, I can't go down, can they? But on a sort of downward spiral sense. Um, and Ian Wright scored a goal from from heaven. It was absolutely, it was one of those, it was one of my favourite goals I've ever seen. He, he just gets the ball and kind of, just finds a little tiny bit of space. He's far out and it hits an absolute world-class shot. It was quite early on in the game. He sank to his knees, I remember, and like looked at the heavens. And that was how everybody felt because it felt like Arsenal needed a bit of divine intervention in that season. And uh, after that, it was classic 1-0 to the Arsenal stuff. And it was a real defensive, uh, under the cosh, backs against the wall situation. And I remember uh, I started smoking in the second half of that game. <laughs> it was that tense. I had smoked previously and had given up. And I was in a period of not smoking. And I seem to remember whoever was near me who had a box of cigarettes. I um, I, I decided that was the time that I couldn't face it any longer. Yeah. It was really, really tense. And the other one that runs that close is uh, Villarreal in the semi-finals of the Champions League. Uh, and that second leg, giving away a penalty right at the death, uh, where I definitely thought I was going to vomit. So, uh, which wasn't great because I think I was working, so that would have been a bit embarrassing in the press box. Were you smoking? But, uh, no. No, I've got it. I haven't smoked for years. <laughs> One thing before I ask James that Ozair game, I am. Um... I had a gig that night in Kingston University, which was known as the worst 
uh, a university gig. And it was in the bar, but they, they waited uh, until after the game, which was uh, pleasing to me because I wanted to watch the game. And then I died so badly after that game. So I have very mixed feelings uh, about that night. Uh, James, what about you? Not a smoker myself, uh, but thanks for asking. <laughs> no, I, I, <laughs> the cup semi-final I was thinking of, uh, way leg rather, it was, was the same as Amy the Villarreal game. And... Particularly um, relevant, I guess, given that that's what we're playing for this week. You know, potentially a semi-final, two-legged semi-final against Villarreal, not just any Villarreal side, one managed by Unai Emery. But um, yeah, that was incredibly tense. It was one nil in the first leg. That was a close game in itself. Colo Torre got the goal, and then we went out there and con- managed to concede a penalty. I think about two minutes from full time, Gail Clichy. I seem to remember giving somebody a nudge in the back. And Juan Riquelme up against Jens Lehmann. I mean, you couldn't. there couldn't be a penalty taker you'd be more worried about. He had such supreme technique. It really felt like... Jens got in his head, though. He did. He did. And he got in all their heads, to be fair. He made a lot of good saves in that game. But yeah, do you remember, Amy? I don't, I don't have a clear recollection of it. But was it? Was there, were there words before the spot kick was taken? <sighs> Uh, I mean, I was um, I was in the stand and we had an angled view of it. I was kind of uh, on the corner looking sideways on at the penalty area. Mm. And uh, I just remember sort of pacing up and down the aisle and trying not to be sick. Um, so I can't give you the details of where the words were said. But it was um, a moment of extreme tension. And, and uh, uh, what was fantastic about it, it, was it felt kind of like golden goal-like or sudden death-like because I think... Um, you know that the, the you knew that pretty much as soon as the penalty was taken that was that mm. so i think the arsenal celebrations were pretty uh uh exuberant it was um, like winning emotional. a shootout wasn't it you know it's just mm. that instant moment mm. if you get the save and you think we've probably done it and what a prize as well to go onto the club if you look if you look at the video if you look at the video of it i've i vaguely remember that if you it, it is a close up of Raquel May's face and he just looks like Jens Lehmann's living inside his brain. Mm. That must be a scary place to be. <laughs> well, rather than living inside Jens Lehmann's brain as well, I imagine it's quite scary. Um, I was also going to talk about Villarreal as well. I watched it at my friend Sean's house and we were ranting when the penalty was given away and when he saved it. There was that. It was that moment you you realise, as you said, James. You knew it was over at that point, and you realise, oh my God, we're going to a Champions League final, and we're going to the game, and also getting on, um, going on the internet straight away. Or I'm not sure the internet still existed. Maybe it was a phone at that point. But we um, we realised that the tickets for Eurostar that were a hundred pound the day before were three hundred pounds. Uh, about ten minutes after we went on the site, um, but yeah, that was a. Yeah, getting to a Champions League final was a pretty uh, tense European night. Uh, as you say, James, um, we are, we've got another one coming up and we're going to talk about that in a second. I should say you can subscribe to The Athletic right now for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. That is 40% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to take advantage of this special 40% discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. So, Slavia Prague on Thursday night. We let in a very, very silly late goal. Uh, last Thursday, we played pretty well against the team, uh, the league's bottom team uh, at the weekend, and we looked to be in reasonable form. Um, James, I'll start with you. Uh, I had a chat with you the other day. You're pretty confident, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm that confident on air, but off air, yeah, I'm certainly <laughs> giving it large. I, I, I oh, you said we go on to European glory. <laughs> I, pro- I promised, didn't I? I promised that we you would. You did. Um, I, well, I do have a. I'm confident to a point. My my hunch is that Arsenal will make the final. I do feel that that is where this season will come to a climax. I hold my hands up if we go out and, you know, it's a it's a tall order. I think going to this particular Prague team. You know, they are unbeaten at home in all competitions all season. Unbeaten mm. in all of their last 23 games, again, across all competitions, having faced some fairly decent European opponents in that period. I think the late goal changes everything. It makes their task pretty straightforward. All they have to do is hold the game. I mean, if they come out with a nil-nil, which I think they got at home against Leicester, they will go through. But it also makes our task more straightforward. We know we need to go there and win. And in a funny way, I think that might help this Arsenal team. It might stop them being a little bit paralysed and unclear exactly how to play it. It will force them to be front-footed. I think we saw enough in the first leg for me to believe we have the better players. And on our day, we can be the better team. I just really, really hope this week on Thursday night is one of those days. Yeah. I mean, Amy, it rather... I mean, I feel the same way as James, that I think we're better than them. But they're a strange team, Prague. They they had chances before they scored that goal. You know, they I mean, they conce- conceivably, they could have won that game at the Emirates. So they are a team to be wary of, aren't they? But were we a bit wary in the first leg, a bit too, a bit too cautious? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I found that a very frustrating first leg because uh, it felt like an opportunity missed and I think when their manager comes out and says well we're gonna you know we can play a lot better than that and we know we're gonna have to play a lot better than that, than that in the second leg I think they know that they got away with one yeah. in that first leg um, given the a bit of the the sort of preamble I was I was quite fearful of how good they might be and actually on the night I thought they looked pretty average in yes. general and at best was was cross with Arsenal for not having the gumption to try and put the tie halfway to bed. Um, so it felt like quite a naive, cautious kind of approach from Arsenal. And even even without the away goal, if it had, had Arsenal won 1-0, I still think, oh, you know, it should have been, could have been better than that. Um, so it's, but at all the knockout games of of. Arsenal have managed to give themselves a bit of a task in the second leg. I don't think any of the situations have been straightforward. Um, that's Arsenal at the moment. It, Arsenal can't be trusted. And maybe in a way, as James is kind of alluding to, it's sort of 
suits this team to have to be uh, more adventurous and a bit throw a bit more caution to the wind than it seemed the case in the first leg. So I think it's it's got to be a bit of an attack, attack, attack situation. I hope, and I think also got if they play the right combinations, they can cause damage. Well, yes, but the right combinations. I mean, I mean, all right. Let's start with who plays at left back. Um, Granite Xhaka played at left back against Sheffield United, but I mean, I don't know, James. I, I am very, very torn because basically our best attacking player this year has been uh, Bukayo Saka, and we don't really want him to play at left back. But he also is probably our best left back at the moment, isn't he? Maybe. I mean, Granit Xhaka did a very decent job against Sheffield United, but I think, you know, that was quite a specific opponent and I'm not sure. I think he'd maybe be more tested in that role uh, away to Prague than he was at Bramall Lane. It's a really tricky one for Mikel Arteta. I mean, Kieran Tierney is just an incredibly important player. He probably won't play again this season from everything Arteta has said, or if he is going to play again, he probably needs us to go pretty deep in Europe. Um I find the left-back conundrum really, really hard because I can see the case for Saka, but I think there are injury doubts over the likes of Smith-Rowe, Martin Odegaard. You know, if those guys aren't fit, I think the need to have Saka in the final third contributing the creativity he offers in that part of the park becomes all the greater. Um, I can see the argument for Saka based on what he did at the weekend, but... You know, we could need him in the middle of the pitch next to uh, Thomas Partey, rather, where he's really at his best. Then you come back to Cedric, who I think, you know, by and large, has done okay in a position that is not his first choice position. I think if you play Cedric, the key is who you complement him with, who you play in front of him. And I think one of the things that was so problematic for Arsenal in the first leg was they played a right-footed left-back in Cedric. And then in Willian, they played a guy who not only is right-footed, but also doesn't really make those runs in behind. He wants to come short, he wants to come inside. And I think that left Arsenal looking a little bit narrow and a little bit uninspired on that flank. So if you do go with Cedric, I'd like to see someone else ahead of him. Do you think it's a good place to be for a big club like Arsenal to essentially, you could have two different defences play on um, on Thursday, Amy, and you wouldn't necessarily plump for one over the other. I mean, complete defences, two different centre-halves, two different right-backs, any number of people at left-back. Is this a good place for Arsenal to be in where we really don't know our first-choice defence? I think it's interesting, particularly with the centre-back combinations, that there's sort of two different pairs that seem to complement each other well. Uh, and Mari and Rob Holding seem much more comfortable together. Um, Mari was excellent, by the way, I thought, at Sheffield United. Mm. And Louise and Gabrielle seem seem to be, uh, you know, a, a more natural combination, whether that's partly linguistically that, you know, you get that ex- extra little bit of communication or you can talk to each other very very quickly and make each other understood um but that both those combinations seem to be slightly superior to any other mixture of those four players so yeah i I know it is odd and i don't know who he will who he will plump for um but uh i think obviously arsenal have got to take this uh, you, you know be careful and not give away more goals here but the most critical element really is how Arsenal are able to be quick and creative and have dynamism and energy to try and get in behind 
that high back line of Slavia Prague's, which they didn't really do enough of in the first leg. Quick and energy, James. Dynamism getting in behind. Gabriel Martinelli has to start, doesn't he? I thought he was excellent at Bramall Lane and I thought he he showed... Do you know what? He's a bit of a rough diamond at times. You know, not everything he tries comes off. But so much of what he does ends in a moment of productivity, ends in a shot of goal or a key pass. He's very, very direct. And I think that's something that this Arsenal team can lack at times. He's someone who can carry the ball, who can dribble. You know, he can make runs in behind. He's got a good finish on him as well. There's a lot to like about him. And, you know, when I talk about wanting to see someone else on the left-hand side, maybe, if you're going to go with Cedric, he is a great example of someone who would make sure that you still provide sufficient attacking threat. But it's a puzzle, you know, the Arsenal attack. I feel like there are a lot of really interesting, potentially exciting components there. You know, you, you can think of fitness permitting, Martinelli, Odegaard, Saka. I think Nicola Pepe is showing more and more as the season goes on. And then, of course, you've got Aubameyang and Lacazette to choose from. The challenge for Arteta, and something that he's not always got right this season, is getting that blend, you know, getting the correct cocktail between those particular players, making sure you find complementary partnerships and relationships in that front four. Um, I didn't think I even mentioned, sorry, Emil Smith-Rowe, who's another one to consider. So, yeah, I agree with Amy. You know, Arsenal need to win this game. They need to score goals. And we saw in the first leg there was space in behind that Slavia defence. It's just about making sure we get the right players out there to punish them. Well, that brings us then to Aubameyang. Uh, uh, Amy, I mean, he's our top earner. And he was our top scorer last season. And the only reason, by the way, the, that we're in the Europa League at all. Um, but does he deserve a starting place based on his performances in the last month? I think it's a complicated situation. And and uh, first of all, I'd say I don't care who our top earner is. And I that's not something that uh, defines who I want to play. Um, I... I think that he's gone through a difficult time and it's fairly obvious that there is a disconnect going on at the moment between him and the manager. And they've got to thrash it out. Uh, arguably, Mikel Arteta needs to <laughs> make things better there. He might, you know, he, he might have uh, his reasons, but his top, top striker is not in the best place at the moment. And... That can't, there's something wrong there, and I, I I think it needs to be resolved as soon as possible. I, I I felt like there were alarm bells for me the second I watched that interview in advance of the North London derby, um, and it was felt like a huge red flag. Why is the manager calling out the top player in public before a match as large as that? And I was worried that it might turn into something and I thought it was a massive call because if you do something like that, you've got to get it right. You've got to make sure that you send out the message and the message works. Otherwise, you end up potentially with uh, a, a, a bigger and thornier problem. And that looks like where, we've, where we have been recently. He came on, you know, very well and played uh, in the right spirit and with... Uh, great intent and obviously nearly scored and then helped to set up uh, Arsenal's goal. Um, he didn't look like that, that 
that moment like uh, a player who was sulking. Um, but it's not a great situation and you really don't want to be going into games thinking, will he, won't he, is he playing, is he not playing, why, is he all right, what's going on? It's not helpful. Uh, I'd much rather that that situation was finished and that he, he was he was uh, playing or not playing for all the right reasons. Amy, could I just ask on that? I mean, yeah. I, I take your point definitely about sort of Mikel taking that public and I think while he got it right on the day, you know, if you get the result on the day, you're right on the day, you can look at what's happened since and query it. But do you think, is it not fair to say that Aubameyang's not really been himself all season and it kind of predates that incident? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely fair. But again, we're not really privy to all the reasons for that. No. Um, and I think that it's super easy to be critical and jump to conclusions and always take a kind of negative stance about these things. In the end, any performer is a human being. And any performer might have reasons why they can't find their peak all the time or some of the time. And if you're a manager of performers and human beings, you have to find ways to help them, Mm -hmm. to also help yourself. And it's really, really difficult, especially when you're dealing with a competitive environment and egos and the way that modern football is. But it just feels to me like there are different ways of treating different people somehow uh, sometimes and I don't know the ins and outs of it at all but I look at Aubameyang and I think maybe he was having some fatigue because of uh, uh, you know he put an awful lot into carrying Arsenal through you know last season Um, God only knows where they'd be without what he contributed and it's. I think you can look across football and see certain players who either physically or mentally have found this season, following on from the COVID interrupted season of last year, it's you know keeping ploughing on without crowds, um, just game after game after game. There's a relentlessness to it that is even more extreme than the regular relentlessness of the football s- schedule ordinarily. You don't know what's going on in someone's personal life. He he had some leave for personal reasons. Mm-hmm. And I would argue anyone is entitled, if they're having a hard time, that it might affect them a bit. And just because they are a top earner, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't prevent periods where you might be very down, very low, struggling for motivation or whatever it is. And sometimes those people either need a break or a hand or some love, or whatever. And actually, maybe being kind of held up as an example of bad behaviour and sort of put on the naughty step isn't isn't ideal. I don't know, as I said, there may be completely a whole range of different other stuff going on. Yeah. I I mean, the truth is, Amy, I agree with you, all that you said. And I agree, I don't, I also don't care about the fact that he's making 250 grand a week or whatever it is but I do care that he's not producing on the pitch and as James said sort of hasn't done the whole season he did did have seven goals in eight games playing centrally with the three young attackers 
just roaming around behind him in that period just before it all started to uh, dip again. I, well, that's uh, worth the Chelsea game after the Chelsea game when we started to pick up. It was after the the Leeds game was he he started at centre forward didn't he? he scored a hat trick and he had a good run after that. Amy's right, you know, and there were games where. He didn't take all the chances that came to him. I'm thinking principally of one of the matches against Benfica. But he was arriving in the right areas and looked a threat. And at that time, Arsenal were playing with Aubameyang up top. And I think it was usually Smith-Rowe, Odegaard and Saka behind. And it looked like potentially a bit of a blueprint moving forward, especially given you know the length of Aubameyang's contract, the, the degree of commitment on the club's part to him. So I do find it... Um, interesting and a little confusing that we have moved away from that and that is that's while you know fully acknowledging that uh, along the way Alexandre Lacazette's had some pretty good games and he was very good at the weekend against Sheffield United and the finish the finish the second finish against Sheffield United from that glorious can I say through ball from Thomas Partey that was a man who wasn't lacking in confidence I mean surely if you're looking at the team for Thursday night you pick the striker who's informed, don't you, James? I, I don't know if that I would, actually. I just think, seeing what I have, I know it sounds insane, but seeing what I did of Prague in the first leg and the way they play with that high line, I, if, if Aubameyang is fit, and you know we don't know, as Amy says, all the details about how ready to play he is on Thursday. He's you know, reportedly ill at the weekend. and Stylistically, he seems like he might be a bigger problem for them than Lacazette but you know the other thing to bear in mind in that conversation is this could be I hope it's not for all our sakes I mean we'll all take up smoking if this happens but it could be a 120 minute (laughs) tie and so maybe it's the case that you have to think about using both centre forwards across the course of that or maybe there's one who can give you half an hour you know on the hour mark it's a really big decision and I also think it's about how you Complement that centre forward. You know, if you're going to play a Bamiang, I think you really want someone like Martin Odegaard available to play behind him, to, to feed him in, to play those through balls. If you haven't got him, maybe you think, all right, well, we'll play Lacazette and he'll be the pivot and we'll have runners off him. A lot of variables go into it, but um, it's a difficult decision. Would you pick Lacazette then, Ian? I just like the way he played the other day, but like you say, with the high line, hey, what do I know? I just, I just think a striker's in form. Go on then keep scoring goals for us and Lacazette looked hungry the other day and I haven't seen him look that way for quite some time maybe he's a bit of a flat track bully um, I, I actually don't know uh, I think more to the point Mikel Arteta doesn't seem to really know what his first team is um, on a wider point this Amy how big a game is this for the club and, and I don't just mean this season I mean moving forward I, I seem to remember this time last year um, when it was looking like a, a, a very unlikely situation to get into Europe, uh, and it ended up, you know, when the when the FA Cup draw threw up, uh, Ch- you know, Chelsea and in all probability Man, Man City as the semi final and final opponents, and Arsenal were not exactly in the best run, um, <laughs> and. Uh, not not look not really within striking distance of sort of top four or five. I remember contemplating just being out of Europe altogether. I think we had this discussion. Yes, and I, I can't remember if it was you, Stoney, but you know there is you know a school of thoughts 
that it can do a club good to have a season out of Europe to try and regroup and focus and rebuild, etc. And you I told don't sh- me... I don't share that mm. opinion. <laughs> no, I know. You, well, you were talking about the club finances. Yeah, Amy, I agree. Well. And I think it's exactly... I think, in, if anything, one year further down the line, it's even worse. The idea of missing out on Europe right now, um, the financial position of the club has clearly been hugely impacted by COVID. Uh, Arsenal are the most reliant club in England on their gate receipts. Um, so that's going to have been more damaging than it would perhaps to uh, other clubs. And the market looks like it's going to be depressed, but there's still so much um, uh, transfer and contract activity that needs attention for Arsenal this summer uh, that the idea of going into that with finances even more restricted because they won't be in Europe at all is quite frightening. So I would absolutely be ecstatic for Arsenal to continue a very, very long run in European competition. What is it? It's 25 years or more since Arsenal weren't in any European competition at all. Uh, um, Yeah. That's a long time. And although getting used to Europa League finances has been a blow compared to Champions League finances, it's still better than nothing. And... uh, the the situation though realistically is I don't I don't think anybody's too expectant of uh, maybe top four or five again in the league so it does look like Arsenal are going to have to win a cup to get in there but of course whereas last time it was the FA Cup this time it's the Europa League which would mean Champions League which is would would I mean almost seems I almost can't get my head around thinking that Arsenal might be back in the Champions League quite mm. soon. And yes. I know, James, I wanted to um, just pick your brains about your prediction uh, of Arsenal getting to the final, your vision. Uh, who do you envisage them playing in this? <laughs> have uh, a guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't I, know. I'm just I, 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 do, I do have a kind of gnawing feeling inside me that we could be looking at an Arsenal-Manchester United Europa oh. League final, which... You know, at the moment, we'd, we'd do well to get there, given our position in this current tie. So we'd all take it right now. But I don't know if my nerves could quite take it if it came to it. But Well, yeah. how much fun was the last uh, All-English oh, Europa League never, final? I never want to well. think about that as long as I live. <laughs> I know, That's exactly why I brought it up, maybe. But yes. <laughs> European Champions League ties with Manchester United. I remember that wasn't the one that went particularly badly as well. I mean, there's there's... Yeah, there's a lot that would be worrying about that. But the prize is so enormous. I mean, not just a European trophy, something which we don't have enough of in this club's history, mm. but also to, to get back into the Champions League, it's almost too good to be true for a team. It's transformative, like isn't it? 9th or 10th or whatever we are. It really is. It really, really is. And I yeah. think it would mean an enormous amount. I mean, you know, it, it, it's almost dull, I think, for some fans to talk about it from this perspective. But financially... There is so much to play for here. Like, there's a few million up for grabs for us even continuing in the Europa League and getting to the final, which we we need at the present time. Then you've got, obviously, potential revenue of either being in the Europa League next season or potentially the Champions League. And it, that would be a huge, huge relief for the club at an incredibly perilous financial moment. I mean, it's interesting. There are another players and contract situations that need to be addressed. And Mikel Arteta seems pretty consistent in his press conferences in, in saying, well, we'll talk about it at the end of the season. You know, David Luiz's contract, we'll talk about it at the end of the season. Alex Lacazette, we'll talk about it at the end of the season. And one interpretation of that is, you know, he, he's not going to give these guys a new deal and he's just kind of uh, placating them. But I think 
probably more truthful and more accurate is that know. Arsenal... Yeah, exactly. They don't know. They can't make budgetary decisions because they don't know what they're working with. The disparity between them not having any European football whatsoever <laughs> and being in the Champions League is so great <laughs> that it's almost impossible to plan a transfer window. Well, it's very Arsenal, isn't it, this season? I guess there's plan A and plan B, but it just depends how different those We might need a plan C, D and E, though, the way things are going. But yeah, I mean... We've always been good for that sort of stuff, haven't we? (laughs) (laughs) We better beat uh, with the handbrake at time. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Ian Stone here with Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. One of the things we did mention, we did briefly touched on, was uh, the centre-back pairing. Uh, we actually genuinely have no idea who he's going to pick uh, for those two positions. Amy, in The Athletic this week, you wrote a piece uh, about William uh, Saliba and how well he's doing at Nice. Um I, and I, I really enjoyed the piece, but I, there was a sense of foreboding at the end, I have to say. The, the, the last sentence, uh, the last paragraph read, of course Arsenal have to want Saliba to return ready to compete for a place, but equally Saliba has to want to return feeling fully valued as he currently is at Nice. I sort of felt you wagging your finger at Mikel Arteta a little bit there. <laughs> what? Um... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you know what? I was chatting to someone in France uh, in the week about Saliba, and he, he he put the planted the seed in my head really, and said, um, "You know, I think I think our, our our perspective and the way this whole debate has been framed is uh, how much Saliba gains or proves by going back and going on loan, and will he, you know, impress Arsenal enough to be welcomed back and trusted by Arteta." But this guy in France was like, actually, you know what? I'm just not so sure he wants to come back. And I thought, oof. You know, looking at it from a completely different point of view, um, it, you know, he since he's actually signed uh, quite a while ago now for the club, it's been complex. Um, you know, he went back on loan to Saint-Étienne, which was regarded as the, the thing to do. Uh, Covid happened. Um, there was a strange situation about the French Cup final where because of the way that all the leagues were falling he ended up not playing in that he had injury injury spell I think at one point he finally came and joined for the new season he was I think really enthusiastic and and raring to go and didn't feel like he was given a a particularly fair crack of the whip in terms of the assessment they were going to loan him back which in itself I think even if that loan had come off would have been potentially a little bit like, oh. Because <laughs> I'm sure when he signed, he didn't expect, I don't know, he expected the first year on loan at Saint-Étienne, but I think he then expected to join Arsenal and yeah. compete and play. So I'm sure that that in itself was probably a little bit of a strange one. And then, of course, it became a million times worse when he didn't get the loan and was uh, pretty much left without football to play or without competition. Um so it's been a, a a really complex time in what should be developmentally a really, really uh, important time for a young player. A centre-back aged now 20. You know, this is these should be years where you're really establishing you, you, what you can do on the major stages. And I, I'm so pleased that he's 
very, very happy back at Nice and performing extremely well. And for the nurse sayers who who might go, well, well, it's a bit different, you know, doing it in Liga is not the same as the Premier League and so on and so forth. I would just say this. Nice were fairly catastrophic before he joined. They were losing most of their matches. They were um, very, very poor defensively, very disorganised, very chaotic, very error-prone. And he showed up with... um, Jean-Claire Todibo, who's come on loan, another youngster from Barcelona. And pretty much overnight, they've changed the uh, the feeling uh, around the team and particularly around defence. And although results didn't pick up straight away, because Nice have been in a really poor form, they are now the form team in France. Uh, in their last six games, nobody has more points than them. And they uh, have become a completely different side and built on the platform of two young defenders, one of whom is William Saliba. And Saliba is particularly uh, well-liked for his composure, but also leadership. And he's playing really, really well. And his numbers are outstanding, pretty much on on most metrics that you measure defenders by at the moment. Apparently, he's not been dribbled past at all. He's had 16 games in Liga. So... Make of that what you will. That dribble pass stat is interesting because it's it's um, reminiscent of when Virgil van Dijk first went to Liverpool. There was a similar stat about him, I think, in his first season that nobody had dribbled. Not that you want to set the bar particularly high. <laughs> no though, pressure, do you, James. William. I mean, no pressure. No William. pressure. But, but I think it's more of a stylistic thing. To be honest, I use that as a comparison because I think there are some similarities in the way that they play, the way they use their physicality, but also. Saliba is, is is a very good player on the ball, you know. And Arsenal, I mentioned David Luiz potentially going. I think we see in his absence sometimes at centre half we maybe lack someone who is very good at progressing the ball, who can either beat a man or play a pass over thirty to fifty yards. I mean, for all his problems, it's something that Shkodran Mustafi actually did pretty well, and it's one of the reasons Arteta kept picking him. He can um, pass, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I think Saliba potentially solves that problem. I also think. Everything that I've heard and that Amy wrote about as well, it's it's it speaks of a guy who is a leader. He's twenty strong. years old. Yeah, strong, really mentally, mentally strong, isn't and, he? Yeah. and he would have to be to survive and to get through what he has done in the past twelve to eighteen months. But I just think he's shown real character here. He's gone to a team that was struggling. He stepped in. He was playing. You know, competitive games for them within about three days, three, four days of arriving yeah. in France. You know, it's a huge step to make from playing in, you know, the Arsenal's reserve to suddenly going and playing Ligue 1. And there was a little bit of an adaptation period, but he settled there very, very, very well. I think Amy's right. I think Arsenal, they've got they've got to make a pitch to William Saliba that makes him feel like it's worth his while coming back, because frankly, it wasn't worth his while being here in the first half of the season. And yeah, I, I just hope desperately that Arsenal do that because we're talking about, you know, the need to renovate the squad, the financial problems. This is a guy who's bought and paid for. We've got him. So he's- 30 million quid we spent on yeah. him. I mean, that is a serious amount of money. Uh, not that I want to go on about Mikel Arteta's shortcomings, but this feels a little bit again like what happened with Aubameyang and... and when Mikel Arteta seems to turn against someone, Amy, um, they're, they're very much frozen out. It's happened with Matteo Guendouzi as well. Um, 
Does that concern you then? I can understand why when Mikel Arteta joined the club that he joined with the mess that he picked up, taking a real hard line on expectations and standards and discipline and all that kind of old-fashioned George Graham-style stuff made loads of sense. But on the other side of the coin is the sort of more Wenger-esque um, human side of man management where not treating everybody the same way sometimes is necessary because people are different and some will react uh, in very different ways to a, 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 a tougher set of demands or a little bit more love or whichever way things fall. And it feels to me a bit like maybe this is one of the consequences of being in your first job where you feel that you really, really need to set your um, impressions really clearly, really quickly and make it very clear exactly who you are and how you want to be. Um, and perhaps it was very, it was too much for him to be able to have flexibility as well. But I think in modern management, you have to have some flexibility about how you deal with people. And it feels like that's maybe still work in progress, let's just say. Well, let's see uh, how that goes. And uh, now every week on this podcast, we do what we call the random ask generator. Um, basically, um, usually our producer Tao uh, picks a player, um, but I pick one this week. Um, and I thought, I wonder what you can make. Uh, James, let's start with you. Eduardo is the player I thought we could talk about this week. Wow. Well, I'll start at the beginning, which is to say that Eduardo is one of those brilliant rare cases of a player coming almost out of nowhere in that it was not assigning a deal that was rumoured or talked about in any way. Thierry Henry had left Arsenal and the papers were full of talk of Nicolas Anelka coming back, potentially, who was at Bolton at the time, ultimately ended up joining Chelsea. And as far as everyone seemed to be concerned, that was the target. And then kind of almost under our noses, Eduardo pitched up in London um, and it was a complete shock and a complete surprise. And also, given that he'd been playing in the Croatian League, not someone who was enormously well-known or who we knew very much at all about. So uh, from a fan perspective, I absolutely loved that. You know, the signing being sprung on you, the exoticism of a, a, a name you hadn't necessarily heard before. And of course, as soon as we saw him play, we realised he was also a very special talent, but I'll let you guys chime in on that. <laughs> Amy? Well, I think, sadly, my, my main memory is is a, a, a really painful one, which is um, that injury that he suffered. A really deeply traumatic day for everyone to do with Arsenal Football Club, particularly Eduardo. But um, not only was it a appalling um, scenario for the player... But the knock-on effect that it had on the club is something that I think we can all relate to the fact that That's probably right. that was the that was the you know maybe the closest Arsenal have been to being uh, title winners since Invincibles. Um, that season felt like it really could have been. Uh, I know there was a season that Leicester won it that was also a, no. a, a possibility, but I. In a way, it felt there was so much that felt like it was. Um, uh, it felt like there was just something happening, and 
it was just interrupted. It, 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 it just changed the course so radically, so quickly. And in a way, I'm sad also because that team, that was the sort of project youth team. So, you know, with some of those great young players that Arsenal was trying to re, Arsenal was trying to rebuild to be successful with young players. Uh, and I think it would have been a very, very special title had it ever got that bit further. This has not gone the way I expected it to go. But no, I think that that Birmingham game was was such a pivotal game, really, in terms of how what happened to the club moving forward. I would, I would like to talk about a goal he scored against Aston Villa, I think it was, where... He hit it with what seemed like the outside of his foot. It was hard to tell. Oh, his heel. Yeah, yeah. Something, but he did something so... I'd never seen anyone do anything like that before. And it was only when they played it, they replayed it on the big screen and you get the ooh and the ahs from the 60,000 people watching. And you thought, how's he done that? And he made it look so simple. He was one of those players who... It's hard. I, I can't even imagine how good he might have been if it wasn't for that idiotic assault that he got from Birmingham and by the way if you're not if you don't want to think about that sort of stuff don't look at the picture of the tackle because the guy's not even looking at him when he does it um but I just think he was outrageously talented uh, mm. and and I, I I'd never seen anyone we were talking about Carnu last week and what he could do I think Eduardo had a similar obviously completely different physicality quite squat but the skill of the man I know we say old Brazilian, of course, but it wasn't that. It, it was it, it was something. I like to say I like those moments when they do the replays on the big screen, and I think I think it was Villa that game, and he scored, and it, I just thought, wow, you're you're absolutely brilliant at football. Yeah, he he had a finish for every instance, didn't he? Every occasion, it didn't matter where the chance came to him. He wasn't a guy who you know had one kind of trademark finishing style. He had variety. But he was a, a, a fantastic finisher. His composure, in some ways, was his greatest asset. I mean, you know, he wasn't electrically quick. Uh, he had very good movement, but he wasn't super fast. He wasn't super strong. He was a hugely intelligent striker. And, uh, yeah, that, that ability to kind of, a bit like Kanu, as you say, find time in the box when others couldn't find space and find the finish was... Amazing. Another memory I have of him, and I'm afraid to say it's not a good one, is I remember the the, the dive of anger. Yes, about his <laughs> yeah. Celtic. That was dive. what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. So he ended up being banned for two games, which was later overturned by UEFA. Yeah. But I just remember feeling like it was such an overreaction from a player who had no real track record of simulation and who, frankly, if they were going to hurdle a challenge to avoid contact, I think them of all people you could forgive. Yeah, fair it enough. Was completely bizarre. I think it was against Celtic, wasn't it? Of course, yes. Arthur Celtic, Boric in goal. the border, yeah. But there you go. Amy? Well, I was going to say that, so you've uh, stolen my thunder. Um, <laughs> That's the one, uh, isn't it? Really? Uh, uh, it's, I always found these players quite interesting where like, he was so obviously Brazilian. And yet he was Croatian in terms of uh, <laughs> Brazilian, yeah. where he played his his yeah his international football, and yeah. I think he's I think he's one of the Croatian national team's highest goal scorers. Actually, I think he's not far behind Dabo Šuka, who is uh, he, he was uh, top like I say, he was brilliant. 
And uh, I'm glad we had him and I wish we'd had him for a bit longer. He was um, also super, super nice. Like everybody loved him and said he was seemed like a lovely guy. Met. Why do I think that he seemed like a lovely guy, Amy? Is it because you told me or somebody, everyone talked about him in that way? I think everybody was like, oh, Eduardo such a nice guy. It was just one of those things you had to say about him, I think. <laughs> well, I'm going to say it as well. He seemed like such a nice guy. Uh, let's have a song before we go. Um, James, I'll start with you. Well, it's a big week. Um, so I've gone for a song by Small Faces, All or Nothing, because that's what it feels like for this season. Great song uh, and great choice, Amy. Can I can I pick a song that's got nothing to do with this week at all? No. By all means, we'd love to think about something else. <laughs> yes, of course you can. Of course. Right. Why? Uh, Why I'm going to pick a song um, uh, inspired by a guy, uh, an Arsenal fan called Jack Adams, who I just saw earlier on Twitter um, died, and I don't know what the circumstances were but he was a super nice fellow and I got to know him a bit almost by uh Twitter to start with and he was a huge dedicated Arsenal supporter and he was a really into his music he was a a music producer and I think he first got in touch with me over um music on Twitter and I think he might I don't know why I have a vague recollection that we first began talking about because of uh, Alison Limerick, Where Love Lives, which is a fantastic piece of music. And I think he was involved in that, and that's where we got first chatting. Um, so I'd like to dedicate Alison Limerick's Where Love Lives to a top gooner and a lovely bloke. said Amy um all right I'm I am gonna think about the game on Thursday um I've got uh, I picked the message Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five only because of don't push me because I'm close to the edge <laughs> so um there you go oh, it's uh, a rare ha- occasion when you picked a song that I had me nodding in acknowledgement <laughs> well done Stoney wow occasionally <laughs> How I I feel I don't I'll feel patronised at all. Thank you. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> you you with your music degree. Um, <laughs> that's it for handbreak off. Thank you, James McNicholas. Thank you, Amy Lawrence, and also uh, thank you to Tom, uh, who has been producing uh, in the absence of uh, of Tayo uh, this week. Uh, well, fingers crossed for Thursday. I'm Ian Stone. Thank you very much for listening. See you soon. <laughs>